It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. we got an interesting one. We're going to be kind of all over the map, as is often the case here on the Tom Sumner Program. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, uh, author and journalist Carrie Blakinger um, talks about her book, uh, Corrections in Ink. A memoir, and it uh, it it addresses um, well. It, it, the point of the book is to express that for those still in jail and prisons across the country, it affirms as fact that a life of meaning after prison is possible. Should be a very interesting conversation to be sure and one like I've had with uh, Leon L. Alamin several times on the show and um, in the middle of our three-hour tour we're going to talk with the author of um, a book it's uh, speculative fiction and a supernatural techno thriller as well as being spiritual the apocalypse uh, excuse me the apocalypse game by D.C. Smith, and he'll be joining me uh, coming up during the uh, second hour of our three-hour tour. But first, we're going to talk about the impact of uh, media, and in particular, woke media, um, and how it might be hindering democracy in some way with investigative reporter Bacha Unger-Sargon. And uh, she's written a book called Bad News. And uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to start out with a little music from Flint's own uh, Greg Nagy covering a a Beatles song uh, that I play from time to time because as we talk about news things, um, I kind of drop that in. In fact, I... um, Greg did a thing when the pandemic first started where he put out, um, it was kind of kind of like a proposal, uh, a request for requests, and asked people to suggest songs that they'd like to hear him play, and then he would learn the song and play it. He did a different song every day for 30 days. This was one of those songs. But what happened is I, I, I 
told him that I was doing this, and I recorded all of the songs that he played. And so I go through them sometimes and see if one fits with a particular guest we've had. So if I have a few minutes and I'm going to put in music, it might as well be something that relates to, you know, what we've been talking about with the guest or or whatever the topic is uh, at that particular time. So we're going to listen to a little bit from uh, Greg Nagy, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about media and its impact on democracy. I'm sure we'll be talking about uh, uh, today's hearing tomorrow on Armchair Politics. Stay tuned. <music>
thousand holes in Blackbird Lancashire And though the holes were rather small I had to count them all Now they know how many holes it takes to fill over Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. My uh, my guest this hour is uh, let me let me make sure I get this right. She is the uh, deputy opinion editor of Newsweek and the author of a new book called Bad News: How Woke Media Is Undermining Democracy. And her name is Bacha Unger Sargon, and she joins me by phone. Bacha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really such an honor to be talking to you and to be talking to the people of Flint. <laughs> well, you know, it's this is one of my my favorite topics because I'm old enough to remember Walter Cronkite, not quite old mm-hmm. enough to remember Edward R. Murrow, but um, <laughs> but but there's certainly been a shift during the last half of the last century and even more so into the into the uh the new millennium and i and i want to talk to you about that but but first taking right out of the title what is woke media i'm so glad you asked that um So I get a lot of validation for my thesis from two sources. The first is journalists like you who have noticed a huge sociological shift in who journalists are, people who can remember when journalism was a blue-collar trade, you know, a working-class job, and, and, and have seen that shift, witnessed that shift to where it's part of really the American elites today. You know, in order to become a journalist today, you really have to come from money and have a very, 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 um, you know, high status degree. So that's the first source of, of validation I get. The second is from working class Americans who are people of color, black Americans, Latino Americans, who look at the way race is discussed in the mainstream media and just do not recognize their values at all. So the word woke originated as black slang for staying aware of and awake to the ways in which the state, uh, America, was still uh, systemically racist. And, of course, that's an extremely important thing to do. When I use the word woke media, what I'm talking about is a phenomenon that sociologists have noticed that started around five, six, seven years ago to where white liberals have become more radical and more extreme in their views on race than black and Latino Americans. That's how I use the word woke, um, to describe a kind of obsession and moral panic around race 
that white liberals are perpetuating, that the media is perpetuating, which is made up increasingly of affluent, highly, highly educated white liberals. And I wanted to understand why that was happening. And, and what I found was that these two phenomena are related. The status revolution that happened among journalists from blue-collar trade to highly, highly educated, elite, affluent profession is the reason that the media now talks about race in a way that is so alienating to black and Latino Americans. And, and another thing that's, that's come up in just the last decade or so is um, the concept of fake news. Uh, now, your book is called Bad News. What's the <laughs> difference between bad news, good news, and fake news? That's such a great question, Tom. Um, you know, President Trump used to call the media, you know, the enemy of the people, and you're fake news, and this is fake news, and that's fake news. Um, you know, unfortunately, in some ways he was right, so we just saw the steel dossier implode, right? So the whole Russia gate, the whole, um, you know, obsession with this idea that Trump was colluding with Russia started with, you know, a series of documents that was published by BuzzFeed that claimed to show that the Russians had compromising information on Donald Trump. And, you know, the man at the head of that was just arrested for lying to the FBI. You know, the whole, that whole story fell apart, but it was covered so voraciously by the news. So I think in many cases he was right that there was really no there there to what they were reporting. That's fake news is when the media gets their hands on something that's too delicious to fact check, right? It's too, it conf confirms their biases so much. They so want it to be true that they publish it, you know, without it even being the case. To me, bad news is, is sort of the woke version of that to where you take every story and you make it about white supremacy, you make it about race, whether or not that is the case, in an attempt to re-racialize American life. And, and I think that that's just disastrous. It, it's like I said, it's extremely alien to, to, to um, minorities and to, to people of color, to the way they see themselves and they see their agenda. But it's also, um, I believe, a way of sort of defending the status quo by, by really distracting us from the real divide in America, which is about class, which is about income inequality. And you just can't get people to talk about that stuff in the same way and with the same vigor um, as they talk about race at a time when Americans are, you know, so united about how evil racism is and so united in their disgust of white supremacy. The words white privilege, white supremacy have absolutely skyrocketed, you know, in the mainstream liberal media, even as these phenomena are, thank God, finally sort of in our rearview mirror. Of course, there are still areas that we need to work on, police brutality, for example, but Republicans are also agitating for police reform now, right? So there's just no longer that divide anymore. And I argue, I, I tried to figure out why is it that when we're no longer divided on these issues, you have Republicans calling for police reform, Republicans releasing people from prison saying mass incarceration is, is, is unchristian, right? How come we are now, we still believe that we're so divided about issues like race? And I, you know, again, I argue that this is very much about the status revolution among journalists, that as journalists became part of the American elite, they abandoned the working class of all races. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek, straight ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Babies come with lots of decisions. Cloth or disposable? Crib or bassinet? So when it comes to protection, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. Get all the recommended vaccines for your baby by age two to protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek, straight ahead. One of the things that I've noticed, and it's very troubling to me, it makes it hard for me to even watch the news, especially television news, is, you know, I, I do a show that's based on long-format interviews, and I try to get mm-hmm. people who, you know, are experts in their field and let them share their thoughts and opinions and let listeners, you know, kind of make up their mind. But when I see the same sort of format being played out on television, the hosts and anchors of these various programs are not calling on experts, but journalists to comment on the headline of the day. Do, do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. And and yeah. it is that is so frustrating to me. You know, when did the people covering the story become the expert on the story? That is such a great question. I think the answer is it's all really about framing. You know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox as well, like they won't let somebody on who's going to challenge their viewers' viewpoint, although ironically Fox is better about this than CNN and MSNBC. The New York Times as well at this point, it will not allow a quote in that challenges the viewpoint of its readership. Who is the New York Times' readership? This is another thing that happened over the last 50 years, and I'm really curious to know if if you've noticed this as well. It used to be that you had different outlets catering to different sectors of the population, right? So you would have the the mass media, you know, um, outlets, or someone like Walter Cronkite, right, who was really speaking to the working class, the middle class, and the elites at the same time. You know, you would have the New York Times, which was catering to sort of highly educated, affluent, liberal set. Then you would have the Washington Post for the, you know, the, the, the political set. Then you would have the Atlantic, which was more for, you know, long form, you know, deeper dive, right? More for an academic set. Then you would have, you know, each outlet had sort of its audience. And and um, the point was to broaden that audience as much as possible. So you had a lot of towns that were one paper towns, right? You know, and, and it was before the great sorting. So that town would have liberals and conservatives. So, you know, you could either lean one way or the other and lose 50% of the readers, or you could go down the middle and get everybody, right? So there was sort of a premium placed on trying to get as broad a readership as possible. Today, because of the pressures of digital media, you have all of the outlets are going for the same six, seven, eight million highly educated, affluent progressives. That, that's sort of all the media outlets are now catering to that same set. MSNBC, CNN, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Fox. They're all, because we, we, we as digital media journalists know so much about who is clicking on what and where the readers are coming from and how to drive more engagement, we, everybody is now going for the same set. That's why you see this uniformity of views across what were once very distinct outlets. And I think that gets back to what you're saying, which is that, you know, these, the readers have been trained to expect to see only what confirms their previously held biases. Now, if you put an expert <laughs> on CNN, they might tell you something you don't want to know. For example, you know, the fact that while the police insult black people more, lay hands on them more, put them in handcuffs more, pull them over more, beat them up more, which are all huge, huge moral emergencies, they don't shoot them more for some reason. When you control for income, 
You know, it turns out they shoot poor whites as, as often as they shoot poor black people. Now, that's, that's, that's a fact. Now, that doesn't mean that still, me, to me, police brutality is still one of the most important issues in America to deal with. But, you know, if you said that on CNN, you would get a lot of angry liberals saying, what are you talking about? There is a genocide happening from police against people of color, right? Like, so I think that that is really why you see them going to journalists, because journalists have been trained to tell their readers what the readers want to hear, as opposed to maybe things that might challenge their readers. I, I blame that as an unintended consequence of uh, niche marketing. <laughs> mm, absolutely, yes. yes. I, I, you know, I and I say it jokingly, but it's really not. It's at about the same time that that peop, that advertisers were figuring out um, how to find uh, television viewers. For example, um, we'll just take soccer moms for example. That they were going to be interested in minivans, and so they would try and mm. figure out how to put advertising in front of the shows that soccer moms were likely to watch. And mm -hmm. somewhere along the line, news started being packaged the same way. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's a great insight, yes. Soccer moms are going to be a lot interested in stories about school shootings than maybe a factory worker. Right, right. No, I think you're, 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 you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, in the beginning when, when, when a lot of newspapers and media outlets went digital, there was this fantasy that it would have this great democratizing effect, right? Because it was now essentially free to publish something, right? You just had to put it on a website. And so there was this illusion that this was going to lead to a much more democratic form of media. But actually what happened was a lot of zeroing in on soccer moms, right? Because you could now control for who was reading your publication. And if you could get only affluent people to read your publication, you could charge more for ads and you could sell their data for more money because they had more purchasing power, right? And so essentially what started in the 70s, which was you know the mass abandonment of factory workers and other working class people in the mainstream media, it really um, escalated when, when, when the news media went digital. And the other problem with that is... Um is is the speed now there's always been competition between media uh between back in the day when we had daily newspapers you know and sometimes multiple newspapers in in bigger uh population areas some of the bigger cities they would compete to get a story out first but now it's become so immediate that that these things are happening because of social media in real time and so it's yeah. impossible to vet a story before it gets out there and I, I talked to a, a FBI profiler once who said that the first reports of big events mass shootings and so on are going to be wrong Wow. They're going to be wrong about the number of people injured, the number of shooters, the types of weapons, because wow. they they go on very blurry witness accounts in mm. the immediate aftermath. And it's a mm -hmm. couple of days before everything is sorted out and you get the real facts. And and so I've been watching that that 
tendency. And, you know, and, and I am so sick of the phrase breaking news, I can't even describe <laughs> it. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because a lot of the mistakes, you know, you're never going to make a mistake that um, challenges your priors, right? Like the mistakes are always in the direction of confirming what you want to believe about about the malefactors, right? <laughs> right. But it, but it takes a couple days. You know, the law enforcement people on the scene don't know anything yet. You know, they're, they're just yeah. getting there and asking questions at the same time that other people are asking questions and posting the answers before it's been checked and double-checked and all that. And journalists didn't used to do that. I, I mean, they... It was one thing to be first, but it was more important to be right. Um, you know, something that I think maybe your listeners don't understand is that every journalist is on Twitter. And if you can get out a tweet about something that happened that proves that your po- you know, your followers' political opponents or their perceived political opponents are not just as bad as they thought but even worse, right, have, they're murderous, let's say, that tweet will go viral and all of the people that you respect, including celebrities and people with millions of followers, are going to start retweeting that tweet. The pressure is not just to get it out from a business side. There's a kind of social psychological pressure here to where, you know, what you have on offer is the attention and approval of celebrities, which you as a journalist can get if you tell them something that confirms you know, there were suspicions about the people they see to be their political enemies. And that journalists spend all day on Twitter. So they, that is like the social, that, it's like the cafe where it used to be, you know, where you would go to meet people or like the diner where you would see other journalists and you guys would talk about what was going on. But it's so siloed and the pressures are so intense and you have politicians, you know, getting into the mix, right? And people with just millions and millions of followers, it really, really, I cannot overstate how much the, that, that 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 arena uh, shapes the news. I was shocked to find out that our in Flint, Michigan, where I'm, where my show is based, we had a daily newspaper here, the Flint Journal. It still exists, mm-hmm. but under an M Live online umbrella, and it's morphed to an online version of itself, and more and more. I, I'm seeing and learned that the stories are not, you know, long, detailed, you know, deep dives into what's going on behind the headlines, but photo essays. And they get a click for every photo you look at. And so the stories have become more about collecting clicks than sharing information. It's about the reaction of the consumer. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this happens because, like, papers that are failing, you know, in, in you know, local newspapers or what have you, will we'll bring in, you know, the, you know, these consultants who charge, you know, $250,000. <laughs> and the consultants will often, you know, advise them to go this route, the aggregation route, the clickbait route. You know, it's, it's really sad. But I think for a lot of these places, it's that or perish, right? Like, these are the options because um, there's just no advertising money anymore. So, I, you know, I feel for that. Like, I feel for a small local publication that wants to, you know, 
still have, you know, a, you know, a, a footprint in the American media landscape that's facing extinction or clickbait. It's, it's very, very sad. The problem is, is that the New York Times is doing it too, Tom. <laughs> I, I know it's. I, I'm using. I'm using a small town example, but you know, yeah, I've yeah, talked yeah. to people from the Times and from the Post, and they're as frustrated by it yeah. as well. And and it raises the uh, the question: What can you describe? What news? ought to be what is it people need to know versus what they want to know and will react to that is such a great question because i think we know too much tom like i I feel like we have replaced in america we've replaced like spirituality and community with information and knowledge like i do think we all know too much like we don't need to know you know who aoc is angry at every day but i get multiple emails (laughs) from reputable news organizations informing me about this all the time, about the sort of the nitty-gritty of what's happening within the Democratic Party. Who cares? They're either going to pass this bill or they're not. They're probably going to pass it in some version, right? You know, it's like that that thing where we just know too much, where we've replaced um, a kind of like like social cohesion and um, a sense of what it means to be an American with just this, like, minutia about what's going on at, you know, the levels of, of politics that just really, really, really does not, it does not matter to, like, the average American. So I, I totally agree with you that there's just this attempt to tell us so many things that we just really do not need to know. And I think that the solution is really what you're seeing, actually, which is a mass consumer boycott of the news. I mean, Americans are just checking out. If you look at CNN's ratings, they are abysmal. And they're just checking out. They're just saying, stop telling me these things that I don't need to know. Um, you know, things that, you know, you're making money off of, you know, that the rage that they, that the New York Times uh, instills in its readers for profit motive is, is inexcusable. And I think a lot of people um, are figuring this out. And this gets back to another point from your book, Badhia. The, um, in the title, it says how woke media is undermining democracy. The same people that are tuning out of the news don't vote. Absolutely. And for Absolutely. much the same reasons. They've been so Absolutely. turned off by what's going on. And it's it's the old debate about politics and policy. You know, I have a weekly political roundtable, and we love to follow the horse race. You know, and, and it and it is fun to do, but you know, I don't consider my show a news show. For shows that call themselves news shows, they need to be sharing policy, not politics. I could not agree with you more, and I think that there's a great example in the Build Back Better where. You know, it was very clear to everybody who the heroes were and who the villains were and all of the infighting. And then the media just totally failed to include the fact that at the last minute, the Democrats reintroduced the SALT deduction, which is a tax break for wealthy millionaire and billionaires who live in New York and New Jersey, right? That's something that is actually really important for people to know, you know, that in this bill that's, that's being passed in the name of working families, there's a huge tax cut for billionaires and millionaires being passed by Democrats. That's important information. 
that was not covered. Instead, you had endless coverage of the squad fighting with the moderates, Houston <laughs> cinema every single day, right? Like, who's angry at who, right? And it, it's just such a great example of how the thing that, that Americans actually needed to know, they couldn't find that out. I, you know, people, I talk to people, they don't even know about this. If you're not extremely in, involved in this, you wouldn't have even heard of it, you know? But you would know that Kirsten Cinema is the most hated Democrat in America, right? You know, it's interesting. There's a, um, a uh, uh, broadcasting school uh, nearby. It's between Flint and Detroit. And um, I was a little disappointed to find out that they're really pushing their students to go into tech. You know, mm. not they're they're not even considering or trying to groom people for, you know, an on-the-mic or on-camera presence. It's all about doing the, the technology that makes everything work. They're, it's it's primarily a radio school, and so they're teaching people to be board operators and to do wow. editing and that kind of stuff. And And I thought, well, if that's what's being taught, where are the Walter Cronkites going to come from? Is that true in in uh, in journalism schools as well? There's a lot of focus on um, yeah. There, well, <laughs> in journalism schools, I know it's that, apples and where... oranges, Batia, yeah, but but is the same kind of um, more form than substance thing happening? I mean, I would say, again, it comes back to class, right? Like, um, the, the, the only people who get a shot at being Walter Cronkite come from the elites now. They go to these journalism schools that cost, you know, $70,000 a year. You know? That, I mean, that is insane. You and I know you can't teach somebody how to be a good interviewer. You can't teach someone how to be a good listener. You, that, that's something you have to learn from doing the job, right? You, you, can't, you can't teach someone that. And they certainly are not teaching them that. You know? well, it's all you, about networking. And yeah. you have to at least be curious about the answer. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody doing an interview, and they've got a clipboard in front of them, and... You know, they ask somebody something, and they come back with this, well, that happened right after I was in prison. And then the next question on the clipboard comes up, and it, <laughs> and it has something to do with, you know, what kind of car do you drive? And I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. They just said they were in prison. Don't you want to follow that up a little bit? And... <laughs> that's and that comes from you know don't write out the questions and and you know go through it mechanically listen to what's being said and and turn it into a conversation and be interested in what the answers are yeah absolutely so we started you said that you had noticed a shift in among journalists in terms of who can you t tell me more about that what have you noticed? One of the things I notice is they don't seem to be as informed. They don't mm. understand how the government is actually structured. 
Right. You know, they know all about polling and they know all about, you know, politics and getting out early and spin and, you know, all of the horse race stuff. But they really don't know what governing is all about. Yeah. I, I remember talking, you know, during the, the height of the uh, uh, Trump campaign about draining the swamp. And I talked to a former high-ranking government official who was talking about the swamp. And he says, you know what the swamp is? It's a whole bunch of, you know, lifelong public servants who make the trains run on time. <laughs> That's great, yes. And, and, you know, I I think what I see in in the newer wave of journalists is, number one, a tendency to um, take a press release and rewrite it. Mm -hmm. Um, An unfortunate lack of understanding of how the various departments in government work and and they spend a lot of time on the celebrity of public office and not the business of governing totally yep if that makes sense and it's been going that, on uh, long enough that it's the norm you know i always say that you know Privacy is a thing of the past because young people today don't have an expectation of privacy. Yeah, they don't even want it. <laughs> they, they don't even know that they don't have it. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true with people that are getting the news. They're getting their news from bumper stickers and memes and don't realize, you know, as Paul Harvey would say, there's a rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek. Straight ahead. comes along that's spreading like a plague and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague. Well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell. There is a Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, 
possible contagious novel virus. The Tom Summer Program.com. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, Mark Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More about media with Batya Unger Sargon from Newsweek, straight ahead. That's that's my biggest concern, and I think that's what you're talking about in in your book is that there there's just this uh, it's it's become there was show business and news, and they were separate. Now there's a news business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I just to bring it back to class for a minute, it's just the exactly like you said, I totally agree with you about the celebrity side of things. I think that this is you know, a, a problem in our pol- among our politicians, but because our politicians are increasingly drawn from the same class as <laughs> the journalists that are, you know, um, supposed to be covering them. Um, and, and it's, you know, when you get a certain level of education and see yourself through this very kind of um, narcissistic, very online social media lens as the hero of every story, right, the way that some of our politicians do, and some of our journalists increasingly, you're going to get that kind of celebrity where, to where journalists themselves seem to be casting themselves as a role, you know, in the narrative itself, right, as opposed to being the ones telling the story. And I think that that's so, it's exactly like you said, there's something about it that's really um, not just off-putting, but is so alienating to the average American, you know, the lives of individual journalists are so different from the lives of, you know, average Americans that there's a real disconnect there. And what you're increasingly seeing is a sort of class of journalists who are creating journalism for themselves. And because they are in the top 10%, that's who they're creating journalism for. And uh, it's just there's just been this mass abandonment of the middle and, and working classes. And and I think it's unfortunate, and it and it frustrates me when I watch, uh, you know, the evening news or or watch CNN or or Fox or MSNBC, and they go to their, let's just say, they go to their White House correspondent. Mm-hmm. Used to be when they would go to the White House correspondent, the correspondent would be standing there with a high-ranking official from the White House asking them questions. Now you've got an anchor that goes to the correspondent, and the correspondent is answering the questions. That's such a good point. That is just such a good point. Yeah, it's it's because I I didn't even think about it that way, but that's exactly what I'm talking about, you know, casting themselves a starring role in the news as journalists, right, instead of being the storyteller, there is this, you know, putting themselves in front of the camera. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and it's, it's also, you know, led into um, or contributed to a proliferation of lack of attribution. 
you know, we're not attributing information yeah. to the sources anymore. You know, it's a high-ranking official, um, an unnamed source. They, there are all these kinds of things. And and I've and I've asked this question of journalists before, Batia, and, and said, you know, what happened to people going on the record? And they said, oh, you'll never get anybody to talk if they have to have their name mentioned. Well, to me, you don't have the story yet. Right. Right. You know, until right. you can get somebody to go on the record and say, this is what we did, you're, yeah. you might as well be making it up. But people don't see it that way. They don't have that expectation anymore of getting it from the source. I think there's also, um, I completely agree with you, and along with that has been, um, you know, this shift really started a little bit earlier. You know, in, in 1964 was the first year that most Americans said they got their news from television. And the impact that had on sort of written journalism was that um, print journalists felt they had to add something to the news because they could no longer just report it because you could get that from TV in a much more immediate way, right? So that, that you started to see a shift through the 60s and 70s that we're very much in right now to where the news became much more interpretive. The problem with that is that, you know, when journalists are so different from the Americans whose stories they're telling, right, there's, you know, 75% of, of journalists live on the coast meaning they live in the most expensive American cities. They live in the most blue cities. So not just that most journalists live in democratic states, democratic districts, but in the most, you know, pro-Clinton, pro-Biden districts. They are much less religious than, you know, average Americans. They make a lot more money if they can make it into the, you know, the, their 40s and 50s and stay in the industry. And to become a journalist, you have to come from money because the starting salary is so low, but you have to live in one of these expensive cities, right? Meaning somebody has to be funding this. So journalists now, their lives are extremely different from the lives of average Americans, which means that when they bring their interpretive lens to what's happening, you know, that interpretive lens is increasingly reflecting the values of Harvard and Princeton and Yale and the elite institutions that they went to, right? Because we know the New York Times, for example, only takes interns from the top 1% of universities. So what you end up with is a situation where, you know, when someone like Donald Trump wins an election or, you know, Glenn Youngkin, journalists who have been, you know, educated in these like highly elite institutions who could never imagine a decent person voting for a Republican, they reach for the one thing that, you know, they just call them racist, right? They call them white supremacists. And you see this again and again in the New York Times, on CNN, MSNBC, just journalists who have no idea what life is like in middle America um, using an academic lens to analyze their fellow Americans and then putting that in print and telling the rest of the world, you know, that their Amer fellow Americans are fallen. Um, I find that to be really, really dangerous. Well, my guest is uh, Batya Unger-Sargon, who is a, uh, oh, I want to get this title right, Deputy Opinion Editor of Newsweek and the author of a new book called Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya, I told you when we first started talking that this is a subject near and dear to my heart, and, and I feel like I... I uh, probably needed to let you talk more about the book but what's up next for you 
Well, <laughs> first of all, the opposite. I th- this is this is my opportunity to hear from you know other people about how they see things. So I'm so glad that you shared with me. I, I really learned a lot from you, Tom. What's next for me is um, this is not the book I initially wanted to write. Um, I wanted <laughs> to write a, a book about um, about about how Americans are much more united over the values that that this great nation was founded on. For the first time, I I was doing a lot of reporting from the South um, over the last few years, and, and I wanted to write a book about how, you know, there's been seismic shifts on the right when it comes to issues like equality, and um, <laughs> I couldn't sell the book, Tom, nobody would buy it from me, so I, I wrote this <laughs> book instead, but I'm really hoping to go back to that and, and write about, you know, to write a book called The More Perfect Union about about the, just how, how little divides Americans and how the people pushing this division, and they are all in the elites, they're in the political elites, the media elites, because they're making money off of it. And we just don't have to accept that narrative about ourselves. That's that. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's what's next. <laughs> well, I would love to believe that more unites us than divides us, and that that isn't just a slogan. <laughs> Bajia, it's been a real privilege talking with you. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do not have a website. Um, you can find op-eds that I edit um, at Newsweek, uh, which I would love because I, I try to, to, to give a lot of space to working-class Americans uh, in our pages. So check out Newsweek's opinion section. It's maybe the last place in America where you'll find, you know, uh, right and left, right next to each other. We focus on debate a lot and try to bring people from all sides together. And um, I'm on Twitter, of course. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Bunger Sargon, although I recommend people stay away from Twitter if they can. Um, and, wow, Tom, thank you so, so much for having me. This has been such a privilege and an honor talking to you. Well, bye. Yeah, take care and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Again, that was uh, Deputy Opinion Editor for the uh, for Newsweek and author of a new book called Bad News How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy Batya Unger Sargon and uh, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program
pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>